You're listening to the North Canton Chapel podcast. Thank you for joining us today. The North Canton Chapel exists to make much of Jesus every day to everyone. It's our prayer that this podcast will equip you to do just that. We believe that there's nothing like the church united together in gospel community. We'd love if you'd stop in and say hello in person if you're in our neighborhood. Our gathering times are at 9 and 10.30 a.m. Thank you again for joining us today. Let's listen in. So at five foot eight, he was easily the shortest man in the locker room, but that's what the stool was for. He was surrounded by 38 other men, half his age and twice his size, who all watched him waiting. After a throat clear for attention, a few moments of calculated silence, his powerful eyes quietly called the room to order as he stood on his stool and said, Gentlemen, this is a football. And with those five words, the coach and the eventual namesake of the Super Bowl trophy, Vince Lombardi, made his point unavoidably clear, and it's this. You never, ever, ever graduate from the fundamentals. It's an often repeated story. Business leaders talk about it. Bosses talk about it. You never, ever get beyond the basics. But sometimes those basics are really hard, aren't they? Here's something I've discovered, and maybe you can relate to it. Following Jesus is not complicated, right? You don't have to have a perfectly articulated theology to love and follow Jesus. You don't have to have the answer to every possible question that someone might ask you to follow Jesus, but you do have to have a grip on some very basic, very fundamental truths, and often those are the hardest things. So this morning is our fourth and final week in our teaching series in Nehemiah, And if you're just joining us or if you've been out with the flu or the cold for the last couple of weeks, as I know many of you have, here's the idea. Nehemiah tells the story of a man who is used by God to do incredible things. We first meet Nehemiah as cupbearer to a Persian king. We met him in week one, and he's brokenhearted for his city, Jerusalem, that has been destroyed. And we learn that when our burdens line up, God's power shows up. And then he moves from the courtroom to a construction site. In week two, we saw that when we seek God's glory consistently, we will see his vision clearly. And then last week, we talked about opposition. Opposition arises from guys who not just want to see Nehemiah fail, but want to see him dead. And Brummie did a great job of showing us that while the enemy would love to offer you safety and security, that God wants faithfulness and perseverance. So that's where we've been, and here's where we're going today. This last section in Nehemiah, and buckle up, it's six chapters long, so hope you got the crockpot going. I'm totally joking. All right. This uncovers three sources of strength for God's people in this last chunk of Nehemiah. And these three sources of strength, as you may have guessed, are profoundly fundamental and also very tough. So today we're talking about God's strength. This common strength. We all want God's strength, right? Strength to believe, strength to persevere, strength to hold on, strength to believe the best when everything looks the worst, strength to not give up. Well, where does the strength come from? Is it just this like inner gut thing? Like who has these kind of things? And so today we're gonna take a look at that. And here's the big point. Strength from God follows relationship 
with God. Strength from God follows relationship with God. Let's dive right in. The first fundamental source of strength is God's word. God's word. So take a look in Nehemiah chapter 8. And uh, we're going to start in verse 1. So here we go. All the people gathered as one man into the square before the water gate, not the hotel. It's like the same thing in first service. Like half the room got that joke. Guys, I worked on that joke. All right. If you don't know, ask your parents. So there they are. Everybody's gathered together before this gate in the wall. And they told Ezra, the scribe, to bring the book of the law of Moses that the Lord had commanded Israel. So Ezra the priest brought the book or brought the law before the assembly, both men and women, and all who could understand what they heard on the first day of the seventh month. And he read from it, facing the square before the water gate, from early morning until midday. In the presence of the men and the women and those who could understand. And the ears of all the people were attentive to the book of the law. And Ezra the scribe stood on a wooden platform they had made for this purpose. And there stood beside him six guys on his right, because if you think I'm going to rattle off that list up here, you're out of your mind. And then seven more guys on his left. All right, verse 5, here we go. You do the same thing. (laughs) Verse 5. Ezra opened the book in the sight of all the people, for he was above the people. And as he opened it, the people stood. Now watch what the people do. Ezra blessed the Lord, the great God, and all the people said, amen, amen, lifting up their hands, and they bowed their heads and worshiped the Lord with their faces to the ground. Thirteen more guys helped the people to understand the law while the people remained in their places. They read from the book, from the law of God clearly, and they gave the sense so that the people understood the reading. So here's what's going on here. People gather in a public square, and then Ezra starts reading the book of the law, also known as the first five books of the Bible or the books of Moses, and he just starts reading, and then he keeps reading, and then he reads some more, and he keeps reading for six hours. Now, you need to know this is not my subtle ploy to get more preaching time, But could you imagine what this is like? These 13 guys that are out there that are listed in verse 7 are probably among the crowd. And they're walking around as people have questions and don't understand what he's reading. And they're helping them with insight and they're answering questions and they're all talking about this. What amazing picture this would have been. But then something amazing happens. Take a look in verse 9. And Nehemiah, who was governor... And Ezra the priest and scribe and all the Levites, those are the priests, who taught the people, said to all the people, this day is holy to the Lord your God. Do not mourn or weep. Now, that's a very curious thing. That's a strange response. Why did they say that? Answer, for all the people wept as they heard the words of the law. Now, stop for a second. If a six-hour worship gathering is strange to us, (laughs) this is even more alien, right? Can you imagine that? Like, here we are, Sunday morning, 715 Whittier Avenue, North Canton Chapel. Take your kids up to their classrooms. You drop them off. You do the check-in thing. You come down the ramp. You get some coffee, small talk, conversation, worship songs, bumper video, pray. I get up and speak. And then all of a sudden, somebody, everybody's crying. So much so that whoever's teaching has to get up here and go, hey, wait, guys, no, stop crying. It's okay. You're going to be fine. Like, that's very atypical, very strange. But things get even weirder. 
People are convicted and they're moved. But look at what Ezra does. Verse 10, he said to them, go your way, eat the fat, drink the sweet wine, and send portions to anyone who has nothing ready, for this day is holy to our Lord, and do not be grieved. This is him saying, look, stop the worship service. Everybody head out to eat. Get the 12-ounce filet, get two bottles of wine, and invite anybody who looks hungry to come sit at your table. Half of you are like, man, that's a worship service I'm going to get behind. Like, sign me up. So what is with, his, what is with that call? Why the strange direction? And here it is, the crux of this first idea. For the joy of the Lord is your strength. And we're going to come back to that in just a second. Let's keep going. So the Levites calmed all the people saying, be quiet for this day is holy. Do not be grieved. And all the people went their way to eat and to drink and to send portions and to make great rejoicing. Because they had understood the words that were declared to them. That's the power of the word of God. Now, here's what happens. The people hear the word of God. They recognize that there are things in God's law that they have neglected. Here's God's word and my life doesn't match up to it. And they immediately start grieving. And so seeing what's going on, Ezra and Nehemiah step up and go, no, 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 no. There will be a time for mourning. There will be a time for confession. But it's not right now. Here's why. Because guys, we've uncovered this book that's been neglected for 200 years. We blew the dust off. We started reading and your hearts received it exactly as you were supposed to. The joy of the Lord is here. God's rejoicing over here because you're responding to his word. Do you see how profoundly strong that is? Now what's that mean for us? The joy of the Lord is our strength. Sounds like something you, you know, buy and hang on your wall. What does that actually mean? Two things are always true of me. I am always eager to sin, and God is always more eager to forgive me. I'm just like these people. I chase such stupid, small, unsatisfying pleasures, and God more intensely woos me and pursues me. I am self-obsessed and self-absorbed and God-neglectful, but he loves to get inside and turn my heart. In my flesh, I'm just like these people. I love to run away and flaunt my independence, and God loves to pursue me and call me home. And that is the most mind-boggling thing about biblical faith grace makes no sense grace is the most inhuman response to sin imaginable because it says like no you don't deserve my favor but I'm going to give it to you anyway you can't earn it you don't deserve it there's nothing that I could get no so here I'm going to have to give it to you and God does that because this is what God is like if you're like me you hear this When I want to cry, and I want to weep, and God says, no, here, experience my joy first. It's very instructive that the people are told to be joyful first and sorrowful second after 200 years. And if you're like me, you hear that passage, you hear this read, and you can picture it in your mind, and maybe you're lifted and like transported to the New Testament, where you remember Jesus telling the story of the prodigal son. It's the same idea. 
right? At the exact same time, like I, I see myself there and at the exact same time, I see the effect of my sin on the face of somebody who loves me more than anything else in the world. And I see the pain that I've caused that person. But I also see his smile at my repentance and my return. At the same second that I see tears running down his cheeks, I also see his feet running down the road to come and get me. Because that's what grace is like. Grace is the most illogical response to sin imaginable because there is nothing human about it. But this is why the word of God is a source of strength for God's people. It reminds us of who he is, what he's like, who I am, and why so desperately I need him. This is a soul-centering thing. It's the most, don't ever, ever, ever come away from a sermon, a Bible study, or time in the word and say that was interesting. It's the most insulting thing you can say about God's word. It's interesting. This isn't interesting. This isn't a textbook full of facts that I go, hmm, fascinating. Like, no, 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 no. This is a book of pursuit. The greatest self-disclosure about the greatest being in the universe to you, how he loves you, how he pursues you, and what he wants for you. And so when the whole nation of Israel gathers in front of this stage and there's this platform and they just hear the word of the, the Lord for the first time in two centuries, they are cut to the core because this is what the word of God does best. It afflicts the comfortable and it comforts the afflicted. And then here they are seeing it for the first time. And the master stroke of leadership genius that, that Ezra and Nehemiah do here is they say, look, we're gonna get to confession. We're gonna get there. Our hearts need to unload. We get that. But first, remember whose you are. Remember that the God of the universe is for you. Do you see how practical that is? There's some of you in this room who have forgotten that, or you don't even believe that. And so let me push it in your face one more time. The holy God of the universe is for you, and he is pursuing you, and he is relentless, and he will not give up. No matter how great your sin is, mercy is greater. And so that's the first source of strength for God's people, is look in the word. So, three weeks go by. God's people have been enjoying this feast and this celebration and this party time and this like extended worship session, this big old feast that they brought back for three weeks, but now the tone is about to change. The music has stopped, the wine has run dry, and the people have a very real problem. And so before I give you the second fundamental source of strength, I just want to set the tone. This is Nehemiah chapter 9. Verse one, the people of Israel were assembled with fasting in sackcloth and with earth or dirt on their heads. And here's the second source of strength, prayer. God's people are strong in word and then God's people are strong through prayer. Now, this whole idea of like fasting, not eating, putting on sackcloth, that's like wearing a burlap bag and then putting dirt on your head. None of you have that today good. What is that? What are the, those are ancient Old Testament symbols of mourning. They're this like deep, dark thing way down inside me that needs to come out and it's not going to be pretty, but I got to dig it out. And so there's something coming. They haven't gathered to celebrate now. They've gathered to get deep and dark and really uncomfortable. And so what follows is this really gutsy prayer that I want to read and we're going to unpack. So look with me again in verse six of chapter nine. 
Here we go. Here's how they start. You are the Lord, you alone. You have made heaven, the heaven of heavens, with all their hosts, the earth and all that is in it, the seas and all that is in them, and you, pre- you preserve all of them, and the host of heaven worships you. You are the Lord, the God who chose Abram and brought him out. And so what follows then is this 17-verse history of God's gracious dealing according to his covenant with his people and everything that he has done. But let's pick it up in verse 26. Nevertheless, and that is a tough word. In light of everything you've done, God, Nevertheless, verse 26, they were disobedient and they rebelled against you and cast your law behind their back, killed your prophets who had warned them in order to turn them back to you and they committed great blasphemies. Therefore, you gave them into the hand of their enemies who made them suffer and in the time of their suffering, they cried out to you and you heard them from heaven and according to your great mercies, you gave them Saviors who saved them from the hand of their enemies. But after they had rest, they did evil again before you, and you abandoned them in the hand of their enemies so that they had dominion over them. Yet when they, were, yet when they turned and cried to you, you heard from heaven, and many times you delivered them according to your mercies, and you warned them in order to turn them back to your law. Yet they acted presumptuously and did not obey your commandments, but sinned against your rules which if a person does them, he'll live by them. And they turned a stubborn shoulder, that's not what you once said of you, and they stiffened their neck and would not obey. Many years you bore with them and warned them by your spirit through your prophets, yet they would not give ear. Therefore, you gave them into the hands of the peoples of the lands. This is the exile they just got back from. Nevertheless, in your great mercies, you did not make an end of them or forsake them, for you are a gracious and merciful God. Now, all this is is a glimpse into this on-again, off-again relationship between God's people, these people who refuse to commit, and God who absolutely will not quit on them. It's like Ross and Rachel on steroids. Like, where are we on this whole thing? Like, it's back and forth. And who are you? Who do you belong to? How do we, how do we fit? And then verse 32. Now, therefore, our God, the great the almighty and the awesome God who keeps covenant and steadfast love. Let not all the hardship seem little to you that has come upon us, upon our kings, our princes, our priests, our prophets, our fathers, on all your people since the time of the kings of Assyria and to this day. Yet you have been righteous, and here it is, in all that has come upon us. For you have dealt faithfully and we have acted wickedly. I'm willing to bet that most of our prayer time in the morning or in the evening or before church or in the car doesn't sound like that. So if this kind of prayer is supposed to be a source of strength, let's get our heads around it and figure out what's actually happening in this giant prayer, okay? So there's four things happening here. First, they start off with who God is, you start off with who God is. This is way back in verse six. And you see all this like strong declarative language like the heavens of heavens praise you. God, it's you and you alone. God, you're good. God, look at what all you've done. It's basically them saying, God, 
You deserve everything that's coming at you and more. And you're holy. But they continue, verse two, or the second section of this thing, what God has done. And this is verse seven all the way through verse 25. And the main point is, God, you're faithful. God, you're good. God, you came in and you did something in history. What did he do? Verse nine, he split the seas. Verse 12, he led them out of Egypt. He gave them their law, the land, verse 13 and 15. He provided for them, verse 20. He sustained them, he clothed them, verse 21. And all these actions crescendo to make one giant resounding point, God is good and he loves you. But then there's the turn. Verse 26, what we have done. And it's this terrible, gut-wrenching glimpse into the people's faithlessness in light of God's faithfulness. And it's the crux of this confession. They're saying things like, we are wrong and we've been wrong. We rebelled because we are rebels and we sinned because we are sinners. Quick takeaway, there's no silver lining sin. Doesn't work to try and whitewash this stuff. You gotta dig deep. It's really uncomfortable. Then the fourth section of this prayer, and this is verse 32 all the way through 37. This comes when you grieve your sin, and this is what we need. And they're begging God, like, help us, help us, help us. Two best prayers you can pray. Help me, help me, help me, and thank you, thank you, thank you. And it's exactly what God's people are doing right here. So a few things that I noticed about this prayer. And I want to unfold them here for us. First, it's striking to me how dissimilar this prayer is from many of ours today, right? I mean, look at, look at those four that are back up there. Who God is, what he's done, what I did, and then finally what I need. What do we do? Here's how we do it. God, here's what I need. Um, I know I'm not perfect. And thank you for Jesus, though, and you're awesome. Got to go, right? We have inverted this whole thing. Where do we start? We start with us. Because that's the most urgent, pressing need. Like, God, this is what I got going on in my life. This is what I got to do. God, God, will you please, right? And we've built prayer on the wrong foundation when we build it on us. Because I've got a perspective, and I've got my thoughts, and I've got my plans, and I've got my agenda. But you know what? I don't rule the universe. So it's really good to start by reflecting on the one who does. Start your prayers by talking about how good God is. Second observation. I'm willing to bet this is true for you too. My walk with Jesus is a series of ups and downs, okay? Like people don't think pastors or whatever, it's the same deal, all right? So we have good days and bad days, and you do too. There are days that are like so overwhelming, and I'm like, how am I gonna deal with this thing that just invaded my life, right? Like this thing happened that I didn't, I didn't foresee, or like, you know, somebody said something, and I'm like, oh, now I gotta deal with that, or like there's these things in our lives, and they, they press in. And then we have these great days, right? These are like these, you know, green pastures, quiet waters days. And it's like, man, I want more of those, God. Like, can I have those, please? (laughs) And you're the same way. And this is what it's like to follow Jesus. You want a boring life? Don't come to Jesus. (laughs) But here's, here's the point with this. I find that those harder days are somehow made sweeter by prayer. And I don't know how, but somehow prayer sweetens the tough days. Like you still got to walk through a desert. You still got to climb a mountain, but somehow 
God sweetens it. When Jesus says, he says, come to me all you who are weary and heavy laden and I will give you rest. He doesn't say, come to me all you who are weary and heavy laden and I'll take it all off your back for you. He says, no, come to me and eventually I'll give you rest. (laughs) And that's good enough for me. (laughs) Third observation that I draw from this one. It's interesting to me how closely this prayer mirrors Nehemiah's prayer way back in chapter one. You remember that? For those of you that were with us in week one of this series, Nehemiah has this like terrible like season in prayer. Anybody remember how long he fasted and wept and prayed? How many months? Five. Five months he fasted and wept and prayed and over and over and over. And he had this this season where he's in his little prayer closet in this Persian court privately. And now this same posture is true of his entire people. What's the point? You want to lead something? Get there first. You will never lead people to a place that you are unwilling to go. Practically, parents, you want your kids to love Jesus? Get there first. Dads, you want your sons to grow up in a world that respects women? Get there first. Moms, You want your daughters to cling to their sufficiency and their security and their identity in Christ rather than everything else that this world throws at them? Get there yourself. You want to be a church that makes much of Jesus every day to everyone living on mission? Get there yourself. See, we all want to glory in the result. So few of us want to wrestle and agonize through that process. And I get it because none of us are comfortable looking at our sin. I don't like it either. But here's something gospel that we should take from this text. The closer I walk with God, the more clearly I see my sin and the more amazing I see his mercy. So don't be afraid of your sin, not if you know Jesus. So that's the second source of strength is prayer. So now at this point, God's people are at a high point in their history. This has all been really good. They confessed and God started to restore Right? They're right on the cusp of this thing. The wall has been dedicated. This is like summer of 69, old time rock and roll and glory days all rolled into one. It's like, yes, more of this. This is what we've waited for. The Persian kings being kind to us or able to exist in our land. Ugh. And how many of you know this is exactly when the rug usually gets pulled out from underneath you? 12 years have gone by between that and chapter 13 where we're gonna pick it up next, Okay. So 12 years. Think about where you were 12 years ago before we get there. 12 years ago, it was 2008. Mandy and I were church planting two time zones away in Colorado. Karsten was seven months old. I just finished seminary. I did not have a bald spot. (laughs) But many things can happen in the course of 12 years. So think about where you were 12 years ago. What were you doing? Was it a good time for you? Was it a bad time? That's a big span of time. So chapter 13, our third source of strength is relationship. And just a heads up, here's where things get really, really strange. (laughs) Nehemiah has moved back to Persia, and he's serving the king again because he promised him that he would. And in the 12 years since he left, things have gotten really out of hand. So Nehemiah chooses to close his book with this startling scene that's like an exclamation point at the end of the book. And I'm just going to tell you, I wish it wasn't here. I wish we could have ended on a high point, but unfortunately we don't. So let's pick it up. Chapter 13, look in verse 4. Now before this, Elisha the priest 
who is appointed over the chambers of the house of our God and who is related to who? Tobiah. Remember that guy? Interesting. He prepared for Tobiah a large chamber where they had previously put the grain offering, the frankincense, the vessels, the tithes of grain, the wine, the oil, which were given by commandment to the Levites, singers, gatekeepers, and contributions for the priests. So he made the guy a private room in the temple. That's interesting. While this was taking place, I was not in Jerusalem. For in the 32nd year of Artaxerxes, the king of Babylon, I went to the king. And after some time, I asked leave of the king, came to Jerusalem. Then I discovered the evil that Elisha had done for Tobiah, preparing him a chamber in the courts of the house of our God. And I was very angry. Now, this is where this gets real fun. He says, I threw out all the household furniture of Tobiah out of the chamber. I gave orders, and they cleansed the chambers, and I brought back there the vessels of the house of God and the grain offering and frankincense. And so Nehemiah goes on this, like, temple-clearing, cleansing rampage, like eviction notice. Here we go. He's throwing stuff out of windows. It's not a very pretty scene. And then he sees something else. Verse 10, I also found out that the portions of the Levites had not been given to them, so no offerings, so that the Levites and the singers who did the work, had fled each to his field. So they had to go back to work as farmers. So I confronted the officials and said, why is the house of God forsaken? And I gathered them together and set them at the stations. And then all Judah brought the tithe of the grain, the wine, the oil into the storehouse. Let's skip down to verse 14. Remember me, oh my God, concerning this. Now here's his big prayer. It's interesting. He takes God's house and he says, this is not okay with me. We gotta do something else. But then Nehemiah notices something else. Let's keep going. Verse 15. In those days I saw in Judah people treading wine presses on the Sabbath, bringing in heaps of grain, loading them on donkeys, also wine, grapes, figs, all kinds of loads which they brought into Jerusalem on the Sabbath day. And I warned them on the day when they sold food. Here's what he says, verse 18. Did not your fathers act in this way? And did not our God bring all this disaster on us and on this city? Now you are bringing more wrath on Israel by profaning the Sabbath. And so there's this incredibly like, what is actually happening? Skip down to verse 22. Here's what he says again in the middle of this. He says, remember this for my favor, oh my God. So working on the Sabbath, nuh-uh. Like, we're not going to give over God's temple, and we're not going to give over God's day. And so Nehemiah goes after him again, but now there's one last scene, and this is a fun one. Ready? Verse 23. In those days, I also saw the Jews who had married women of Ashdod, Ammon, and Moab. Now, these were surrounding tribes, okay, that practiced these terrible things like ritual prostitution and child sacrifice. Here's what happens. Half of their children spoke the language of Ashdod and could not speak the language of Judah, but only the language of their people. And I confronted them and cursed them and beat some of them and pulled out their hair and made them take an oath in the name of God saying, you shall not give your daughters to their sons or take their daughters for your sons or for yourselves. And then skip down to verse 29. He says, remember them, oh my God. Now, a couple questions that we've got to ask from this very startling series of events. First, what's going on here? Like interracial marriage? I didn't know that was a thing that God had. Okay, we're going to get to that. Second question that we've got to ask, is Nehemiah right? Is he justified in responding the way that he did? Because 
this is pretty crazy. Like, are we going to start having fist fights in the lobby? No, breathe easy, you're fine. Then the last question is, what am I supposed to do with this? Because if we believe all of God's word is inspired, what am I supposed to take from this thing? So first things first, what's going on here? All three of these little mini scenes, the temple with Tobiah's bedchamber and all this other stuff, working on the Sabbath, and then lastly, this idea of marrying within these cultic tribes. These all reflect specific Old Testament laws that God gave his people. And that before Jesus, these people were required to follow these things for their protection. One protects God's temple, his house. The other protects God's day, and the other protects God's people. And so looking when they were going to move into the land, God said, no, 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 no. It's dangerous for you in there. And so here are things that I want you to do to be holy. Now we look at those laws today as fulfilled in Jesus. And so if you're a Christian here today, you don't fulfill the Old Testament law. You have been given the righteousness of Christ. But these are things that at this time, Nehemiah looks at and he says, this is unbelievable. And they all combine to show us that in 12 years, God's people have forgotten about the law again for like the 90 billionth time in their history. Second thing though, and this is a little tougher, is Nehemiah right to respond the way that he does? Because there's a big difference between church and fight club and we do well to keep those things separate. So how do we make sense of what he does here? So here's my response and this may may be helpful for you. There's a big difference between what the Bible records and what the Bible endorses. Okay, we see this with David's life, which was a train wreck. Just because this happened doesn't mean this reflects God's heart. And scholars are on the fence about this point. I'm going to tell you where I think on it, just for whatever it's worth. I think Nehemiah is not justified acting the way that he did. This does not reflect God's heart. It definitely reflects his holiness. But what we see in Nehemiah, I don't think he's acting out of mercy or grace or a heart toward restoration anymore. I think he's just flat out frustrated. And it's easy to understand why. Twelve years ago, he took a pay cut. 12 years ago, he left his position. 12 years ago, he gave up everything to a people, and now it's like nothing ever happened. This is what psychologists call ego despair. It's the other side of a midlife crisis, and you look in the rearview mirror, and you go, my life didn't matter at all. I didn't do a thing of value. And so he just goes like full-on rage monster and loses it. I don't think he's justified in doing that. I think it's helpful to understand what's going on under the hood. Third question, though. What are we supposed to take from this? And this is where this text gets very, very practical. I think the most helpful way to look at this text is not how the people got off track, but why they got off track. Something happened in those 12 years. Those 12 years before they had this giant revival, and then 12 years go by, and now they're here. Something happened in that time period. You want to know what it was? Nothing. God's people did not do a thing. They didn't grow. They didn't take one step. They got what they wanted. They got their wall. They got their restored city. You know, they got Sunday morning worship attendance just to get God off my back. (laughs) And they lost their heart. And that's one thing that kills God is when God's people lose their heart for him here's the point of chapter 13 
Never mistake gifts from God for a relationship with God. Put another way, the point of the Christian life is not to enjoy God's gifts. That's just a subtle form of idolatry. Did you catch that? Because it's pretty big. The point of the Christian life is not to enjoy God's gifts. That can be another form of idolatry. The point of the Christian life is to enjoy God himself. Those gifts are not the giver. That always means relationship. The gifts that he gives us are like the trail of breadcrumbs that follow us back to who he is. He is the delight. He is the treasure. Don't mistake the two. And the most heartbreaking indictment of God's people at the end of Nehemiah is they substituted the gifts, a wall, a restored city, a legacy, power, yada, yada, yada. They substituted the gifts from the giver and they severed everything and lost it. And guys, we do the exact same thing. You wanna know how I know? What happens when those gifts go away? What happens when that job that you thought was so stable vaporizes? What happens when the perfect kids rebel? What happens when your marriage starts to slip through your fingers? Is God still good? How quickly we hang our heads and shake our fists. I'm looking at it the other way though too. Maybe you're in a season of your life right now where you are profoundly blessed and you are profoundly gifted. How quickly we forget that that house, that job, those resources, all that peace and prosperity that God may have brought you That's not an end to itself. That's an invitation to worship and follow them back to him. You're not in a relationship with God because of what you get from him. You're in a relationship with God just to enjoy being with him. We are worshipers first. And God's people forgot that. So that's the third source of strength, a relationship with God. So where do we go from here? Because we've got to close the book on Nehemiah. And it ends this really unsatisfyingly, doesn't it? Like I told you, I wish this chapter was never written. It's like, oh, couldn't we just end with like Nehemiah galloping off in the sunset like happily ever after? But it doesn't. There's this deep palpable ache for something lasting, something deeper, something more than just stones and walls and gates. Like sure, there's a wall, good job. And in that, Nehemiah has been profoundly faithful. If you went to Jerusalem today, you'd see some of the same stones there. But if this last little bit from Nehemiah and this glimpse into his prayer life and his people teaches us anything, is that for all his personal accomplishments, all his leadership ability, all his burden well stewarded and his vision well understood, everything Nehemiah done, there's one thing he can't do. He can't change their hearts. It would take a much greater leader to do something like that. See, I believe as admirable as Nehemiah is, I believe he's ultimately just a signpost and he's pointing to somebody greater who would one day come and follow him. Another ruler who would choose to live with his people even though he didn't have to. Another ruler who would defend them against their enemy when they couldn't. Another ruler who would rebuild toppled debris and restore the broken places, but this leader and this ruler wouldn't just motivate action, he would stir and redirect affection. And he wouldn't just build from the outside in, he would build from the inside out. Nehemiah's irresolution is his greatest parting gift for us. 
Because we can look over our shoulder 2,500 years later and see a restored city, a built wall, a restored legacy. Not as ends in themselves, but as appetizers. This is a preamble, a prelude to the one man who would take all of that hunger and satisfy everything we ever knew. And his name is Jesus Christ. Because he restores broken things. He leads the lost. And he defends the vulnerable. And he changes our hearts. So before we close the book on Nehemiah, this pretty obscure place in the Old Testament, the band's gonna come back up and We don't do this a ton here, but I feel like I want to do this today because it is like this end of a series, and it's a time where we see this juxtaposition of our hunger and our need and this irresolution that we have in our life up against a Jesus who satisfies. And so I want to ask you a couple questions. As you think about this, it's not just an obscure prophet in the Old Testament. Do you see yourself in this place? Do you know this Jesus? I don't mean know about him or recognize a picture of him or say his name when you smack your thumb with a hammer. Do you really know him? How do you know? Three fundamentals, I'll push them right out there for you. Do you believe what his word says about you? That you are a sinner and that you've broken God's law, but you are loved by a holy God who is chasing you and will not give up. You believe that. Second thing, prayer. Have you asked for his forgiveness? Not just said, I'm sorry, I screwed up, or oops, but like actually grieved over the fact that you have broken his law and broken his heart and asked to receive his forgiveness. Have you ever done that? And then third thing, relationship. And this could apply to two groups in this room. Maybe you've never had a relationship with God and that sounds like so fanciful and so crazy. You're like, how? Or maybe you do have a relationship, but it's grown cold and you're in that on again, off again spot, just like God's people have always been. And so this morning you say, "Ah, I need to get something right. Something in my heart I need to give back over to him. Something I need to release to him. Maybe You don't love his word. You wish you did. Maybe you don't pray to him. You don't have any time with him. And so you have a very formal, stoic relationship. And so here's what we're gonna do. We're gonna stand in a minute. I'm gonna invite you to come up to this altar. It's just a piece of wood at the front of a stage. And take some time and kneel. There's nothing mystical about this or anything like that. No one's gonna ask you any weird questions. But don't leave today without doing business with God and saying, God, I want you more. Maybe this is the first time you've ever heard this message idea that God could love you. Maybe this is the first day you take your steps with Jesus. Let me pray. Father, we do want to say that we love you. We want to say thank you for Jesus. God, help us never to treat your gift lightly, a savior who lived a perfect life and died a perfect sacrifice. How great you must love us. And we know we don't deserve it. So Father, help us to be free now in this moment, either to come and kneel up here, to kneel in our seats in the quiet and just say, God, I'm yours. 
Christ's name. Thank you for listening to this episode of the North Canton Chapel Podcast. If this ministry has blessed you in any way, please share this episode with your friends or spread the word on social media. If you subscribe and leave a five-star review, it goes a long way to helping us make much of Jesus every day to everyone who hears these podcast episodes. You can also donate to this ministry at nchapel.com forward slash give. Thanks again for joining us. May you go out into your places and spaces making much of Jesus every day to everyone.